Welcome to Northview Community Church's podcast. Today we'll be continuing our series on the Gospel of Luke. But first, we will hear an Advent message from Pastor Jesse. We want to let you know about our upcoming Christmas events. We have a comedy special called Late Night with Leland Clausen. It'll be an evening of comedy, music, special guests, and a few bloopers from the past year of Northview TV. Join us live online on Friday, December 18th at 7 p.m. We are all looking forward to Christmas Eve, and our team has been working hard putting together our online Christmas Eve service. Services will be at 3 p.m., 5 p.m., and 7 p.m. on December 24th. It will be a time of celebration and joy, even in the midst of these circumstances. You can watch it on our website or our YouTube channel. For more info and to learn more about all of our ministries, please visit northview.org or follow us on social media. For as long as I can remember, I have dreamed of having a big family of my own. When my husband and I were dating, I told him I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. I wanted a warm and inviting home, filled with delicious food and baking, a huge garden, a yard filled with kids and pets, and to raise children that love the Lord. It's a beautiful, God-honoring dream. Nearly one year into marriage, in June of 2019, a CT scan showed an abnormality in Connor's chest. He had been cancer-free for three years, but in February 2020, he was diagnosed with a relapse of Hodgkin's lymphoma and would need a bone marrow transplant. This diagnosis also brought the news that fathering children would be nearly impossible for him. I would have expected this news to be absolutely devastating, as it completely shattered the plan I had for my life. And yes, there have been times of sadness, tears, panic, worry, frustration, and loneliness. But in all of this, we have been learning to put our trust and faith in the Lord, and not the earthly hopes and dreams that we have. And with that, we have experienced an immense amount of unexpected joy that comes from being completely obedient to God's plan for our lives. From this season, I am learning to change my focus from, I want to be a stay-at-home mom of six kids on a farm, to, I want to use our story of sickness and infertility to bring people closer to God. I still want a big family and kids to raise, and we pray that one day we will have that. My goal is to see the opportunities God has given me to talk to others about the joy I have in Him and His providence in my life. And He has given us joy. I have been able to use my gifts in our marriage. The doctors caught the cancer early. Connor's procedures went well and he is healing. Our church family has been praying for us and caring for us in so many ways. And we have assurance that God will give us a family, just maybe not in the way we imagined it happening. I never expected to find joy in caring for my sick husband, but I am learning that there is incredible joy to be found when we serve others in obedience to God's plan. I bring you good news of great joy, Northview. 2020 is almost over. But seriously, right? Well, like, what an unexpected, what a, what a crazy year. My, my wife and I recently were hanging out with some friends and they've been particularly hit by 2020. They had this amazing anniversary trip planned. They were gonna go to Europe and travel all around. 
And then COVID hit, and all their travel plans got cancelled, and they tried to cancel their flights, but they couldn't, and so they got all these vouchers to random airlines all throughout Europe that they're probably never going to use. One of them lost a family member, and they were unable to, to fly home and mourn with those they loved because of, of the travel restrictions. They've had issues at work. Uh, all, all kinds of challenging things have been happening to this, to this couple. My wife was, was on the phone with them just recently and, and they were talking about how one of their neighbors, one of their dear friends was having all sorts of mental health challenges because of the restrictions. After my wife hung up, I looked at her and I said, man, they just need a little joy in their life. What did I mean by that? A little joy in their life. What I meant is they need something good to happen to them. They need some kind of momentary, slight change in their current circumstances so they can experience joy. That idea of joy being this slight, momentary change in, in our current circumstances is, is, is unhelpful if we think that's what the Bible's talking about often when it talks about joy. Especially when it comes to, to the angels and, and the Christmas story, they, they, they show up to the shepherds. It says that the shepherds are, are keeping watch in the fields. I don't know what that meant, probably just long hours of, of Dutch Blitz marathons, and they're doing this thing, and all of a sudden they're interrupted by these angels, this, this great host, and they say, fear not, I come to you with, with good news of great joy for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. You see, this joy that they're bringing is not some momentary change in, in the shepherd's circumstances. They're not going to receive a, a raise or, or get a new boss or, or maybe get a new job. None of those things. It even says later in the story that they returned to what they were doing. So more Dutch Blitz was on the horizon for these shepherds. See, the joy that was brought to them was that there was now salvation available for sinners because Christ had come. Peter talks about this in his letter. He's talking to Christians who are going through all kinds of, of horrible things and facing persecutions, and he writes this. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The joy that Peter is urging the Christians to cling to is that there is salvation for their souls. See, the joy that I hoped for, for my friends, was too shallow. There's a better joy on the horizon, and it's one that comes this Christmas season as we remember that Christ came to save sinners. That's the joy we're supposed to seek and find. So fellow Christians, Northview, joy to the world, because our Lord has come. One of the movies that my family and I like to watch almost every Christmas is called Christmas Vacation. I'm sure many of you will know that film. Uh, it's about a family called the Griswolds who take Christmas to the extreme. They travel out into the middle of nowhere to get their tree, hike through the woods. Their daughter freezes half to death to get it, but they, they finally get the tree that they wanted strapped to the top of their car and uh, race back home and find that it's bigger than their, you know, their roof. Uh, so I got to cut the top off and it fills their entire living room and then they put lights on it and finally put lights on their house. There's so many lights on the house that it drains the power grid from the city of Chicago 
and uh, they have to go to auxiliary nuclear power to power the rest of the city because the Griswolds are taking so much energy from all their lights. In my family, to call somebody a Griswold is to basically say that they are the opposite of, of the Grinch. They, they are the, the Christmas people, you know? A Griswold is somebody who wears, you know, a Christmas dress or uh, all the time or a Christmas sweater or starts playing Christmas music in, in September. And I have two Griswolds in my house. I actually have my, my son Micah and my daughter Sophie, who are, is a new Griswold, I think, because Micah has convinced her to be one. They, they would put up the, the decorations as quickly as they possibly could, probably in September, October, if they could. They start listening to the Christmas music as quickly as they can. And when they can put the decorations up, man, they put them everywhere. They were going back and forth to Walmart so that they can get more lights and more garland. If you come into my house right now, it's like one of those like, like one of those glow light festivals. We have about seven Christmas trees in different parts of our house. I have one in my bedroom. I think that each one, ha each one of them have another one in their bedroom. There's one in our living room. There's one in our downstairs. Man, I, I get, I'll, I'll find them sometimes in the bathroom. There's a new Christmas tree being put up because Micah and Sophie Griswold have decided to do it. We love our Christmases big. Um, we love it showy. We, we love it filled with lights. We want the uh, feeling of the season. And if there aren't the lights and aren't the music and all, all that stuff surrounding it, we, we, just, we just feel like it's not real. We even drink eggnog, which is crazy because it gives us a feeling for the, the magnitude of the season. What's interesting about that is actually that we, um, the first Christmas wasn't like that at all. The first Christmas was about as plain as you possibly could get. And that's actually what I want to look at today. I actually want to look at Luke 2 verses 1 to 7, which is the description in the Bible, the only actually description of, of the birth of Jesus. And uh, when, when, when God himself becomes uh, a human being and the act of what we call the incarnation, this great theological concept where God becomes man, it's one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world. You expect more detail. You expect more um, rejoicing and more uh, popularity and more uh, broadcasting of it. And yet what you find is Luke himself writes it in the most simple terms. So look, uh, there are three reflections that I want to have about this passage, and I'll just point them out as we go, th as we go through it, okay? Here's the first of them, that Jesus brings a better peace. Uh, verse 1 of Luke chapter 2 says, In those days, Caesar Augustus, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. I want to think for a minute about that, that guy, Caesar Augustus. Uh, he, his background is that he actually uh, had consolidated the empire by defeating two other rivals to the throne, two other uh, guys who had different lands within the empire, and so when he, when he beat them uh, and he consolidated power under himself, he brought along what's called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. You could travel throughout Rome in the same way that you could travel throughout Canada today, where you don't, when you're crossing a you know, border between BC and Alberta, you don't have to you go through a checkpoint or anything like that. Um, so the Pax Romana was an important 
uh, moment. It was a it was a it was a piece that meant that you weren't in great grave danger every time you traveled uh, from other authorities in other regions. Um, he also was called Augustus. That that name, it, it, the word means holy. Caesar Augustus is that he is the holy king, and the reason they called him that is because they thought of him as a god. He was the first Caesar, the first king of Rome that they actually thought of as a god. Uh, at his death, people were so comforted. Uh, at, the only way that they were comforted at his death was the, the, the remembrance that gods don't die. So therefore, Caesar Augustus w- wasn't dead. He was alive somewhere in the pantheon of the gods. He was also called the savior of the whole world. We have that on some inscriptions from the day. So what you got in Caesar Augustus is a king who is considered a god, who is called the savior of the whole world. And he brought peace. He brought the Pax Romana. The problem, of course, is that the peace that he brought was more of a peace through force and threat than it was through a genuine peace through, you know, a warm-hearted motivation from within, okay? You, you know the difference between those pieces, of course. The, the, the piece that is from threat of force or, um, uh, or pressed upon people is the kind of piece that you get when you have two boys who are fighting in your family and dad comes along and he pushes them apart, makes them sit down in separate chairs and starts lecturing them about how they should care for each other and then finally said, I want you guys to make up, I want you to make peace brings them together in the middle of the room and says, right, so hug your brother. And they stare at each other for a second and they hesitate. Dad says, hug them. And so finally, because they're freaked out that dad is going to erupt, they hug each other. And of course, they whisper in each other's ears, I'm going to get you later. But there's a piece there and the piece is through the threat. They're scared of dad. It's not a genuine piece. It's a piece that will erupt at some point, uh, uh, erupt into violence later if there's no threat. What you really want as a father is for your boys, if they're fighting, to have peace with one another afterwards because somewhere inside they realize that they love their brother and they want desperately to have a, a good relationship with them and they don't want to displease their father. So father, he, he lectures them and then they come back together in the room and one of them maybe with tears in his eyes said, I'm so sorry, I know that I shouldn't have done this. The other one said, no, I shouldn't have done this. And then they hug and there's a genuine reconciliation and a genuine peace that takes place there. I'm talking about these two different kinds of peace for a reason. There is a, there is a comparison clearly going on in this passage because at the beginning of it, you have, a, you have Caesar Augustus mentioned and at the end of it, you'll have Jesus' birth mentioned. So Caesar, the king who is called the savior of the world, considered a God who brings peace, and Jesus, who is God, brings peace, is savior of the world, and is the true king of kings. And Luke is trying to say, let's compare these two. And specifically, let's care, let's consider the peace that they, that they bring. One of them brings a peace through force, and the other one brings a peace through grace. What's that, though? Well, what does it look like to bring peace through, through grace? Well, um, 
There's an old Christmas story that, that I'm sure uh, you've heard before as well. It's uh, the, the story about Scrooge. And you know the story about Scrooge. He's really mean to everybody and bad guy, cheap, uh, treats his workers very poorly, wants them coming in on Christmas Day because he doesn't uh, think Christmas is a, a day that you should lose any kind of, any kind of income or work hours. So Bob Cratchit has to come back in and he says, bah humbug to everybody who wants to wish him a, <clears throat> a Merry Christmas. Goes home at night. And his old partner, Bob Marley, shows up, who's been dead for a long time. And the ghost of Bob Marley shows up and says, I used to be like you, but I'm not anymore because I've realized, he's in chains. And he says, I've realized that the way that I lived was chaining me. And I want you to be freed from what I was never freed from. And so there's going to be these three spirits are going to come and they're going to, they're going to basically confront you on the kind of person you are and the kind of future you're going to have. And so that's what they do. Ghost of Christmas past, present, future. And at the end of it, uh, Scrooge realizes in the dream that he's been a real jerk and he's ruined people's lives. And in the future, because he's acted so poorly to so many people that there will be nobody around when he dies. He'll be completely alone and his future is empty. And he, he starts screaming at the end of it, please, another chance, another chance, another chance. And then he wakes up. And he realizes that it was all, it was all the dream. And, you know, he goes over to the window and it's Christmas morning and he throws it open and he says to the boy in the street, go get a goose and bring it to, to Bob Cratchit and his family. And then he becomes the most winsome celebrator of Christmas around. A, a true, generous man who seeks peace in every place, genuine peace in every place. So where did his peace come from? What happened between the acrimony at the beginning with everybody and the peace at the end. And the answer is that he was shown grace. The whole spirit thing was all an act of grace. They didn't need to come and confront him, but they did come and confront him. And it was all just a dream. And he realizes that he's got this, this new freedom, this newfound opportunity. Well, that's what it looks like. That, that kind of peace comes from that kind of grace, a realization of that kind of grace. So here, here's the Christmas stories, basically, the real Christmas stories that Jesus, uh, it, he, he sets aside his, sta his standing with God the Father, and he comes to earth, and he's born in a stable, and he lives a perfect life, and at the end, he dies on a, on a cross. All humility, it sets aside all the great riches and benefits so that he could come and, and, and save his people, be the true savior of the world. And that grace is supposed to do something to those who believe it. It's supposed to change the way that they view their world and certainly the way they view the others around them. They go from people who, who seek to be acrimonious and mean-spirited and a fighter with everyone to somebody who's actually seeking peace, a genuine peace with each other and with the world around them. Peace on earth angels say to the shepherds, and goodwill toward men with whom he is pleased. That's what's supposed to mark us as Christian people, is peace. Does it? Does it show up in the way that we treat one another? And if you say, well, I don't know, not very much, the solution to that problem is not for you to go back and be like, okay, I'm going to be more peaceful now. Under threat of God's going to get me unless I be peaceful. No, that's that's the peace from threat. 
You need to go back and reconsider what it is that Jesus has done for you. The great distance that he's come in order to save you. And that grace will well up inside of you and you'll realize that, man, it is, I, it is really awful and hard for me to be angry and judgmental with the people around me when Jesus has forgiven me and taken the judgment for me. So Jesus brings a better peace. Uh, second, God is more in control than we realize. I think that's another reflection we can make on this passage. I want to go back to verse 1 of Luke chapter 2, and I want to show you uh, by reading to verse 5 a little bit more of this story. Um, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background before I, we talk a little bit about what these verses describe. The background is that if you go through the Old Testament, you will learn that the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, who's going to come and finally deliver them from their, from their oppressors and free them, he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So in Micah chapter 5, verse 1, you, say, you, you read, but, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient time. So the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. The problem is Mary and Joseph live in Nazareth, 145 kilometers away. That's the distance from here in Abbotsford to the Coquihalla Summit or to Squamish or if the border was open to our south to Everett. It's a long, long way away. How do you, if you're God, get Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that the baby can be born where the prophecy states? And the answer to that question is the census. Now, look, from the point of view of uh, the Jewish people, the census was an act of evil and wickedness by an oppressive government. The reason that you took a census was for tax reasons. You wanted to find out how many people you had in your realm so that you could find out how many people, how much tax money you were going to have so you could find out how big your military could be and how, big, how much of the building you can do around. It was a reminder, basically, when they went from Nazareth to Bethlehem, it was a reminder the whole way, that whole 145-kilometer journey, 8 to 10 days that it took them. It's a reminder all the way along that they live under, under an oppressive power, a government that doesn't care about them, that just wants their money, and is treating them very poorly, that they're supposed to be delivered from ultimately by a Messiah. So this journey itself, like I said, is 8 to 10 days, 145 kilometers long, uh, mostly on foot, rich people. I know you've seen pictures of you know, Mary on a donkey or whatever. Rich people had donkeys. This is not a rich couple, so we don't know. There's no donkey in the story. Uh, there's no animal in the story that we know about. So maybe she was on an animal. 
And maybe she was not. But I, again, I want you to think, a pregnant woman, nine months pregnant, traveling all of that distance away from mom. She's not going to end up having her, her baby at home where, where her mother can help her. She's got to go instead with her husband. His family probably lives in Bethlehem, to some, a few of them, so it's not that bad. There will be some people there who can help out. But you are leaving behind family, and you're leaving behind all of the security of there. You're having to pay for this entire trip yourself, and you're nine months pregnant. Traveling on my wife when she was nine months pregnant, man, we used to drive down the road, and I'd have to stop every once in a while so that she could deposit little gifts for people on the side of the road all the time. Uh, she was a very sick uh, pregnant woman. But you can imagine riding a donkey or walking that distance. They don't let you travel on an airplane after seven months or whatever. But then she's nine months, she's going this. My point is, I think that there probably would have been some complaining, concern, frustration at the government while they were on this trip. Like I get frustrated with the government now when they tell me to wear a mask in certain places. I, I get frustrated when they say you can't travel here or there. And I'm not being asked to take my pregnant wife 145 kilometers to another town. So I assume that the way that they viewed this census, even though we're not told that Mary and Joseph are there complaining along the way, I, I assume that they, along with other people who were who were good Jewish people, were awaiting the coming of the Messiah, were not very happy about the fact this census was, was being taken. It was a reminder to them of the oppression. It's a wicked, evil thing, the census. And yet, it's also the means by which God gets them to where the prophecy said they were supposed to be. So a wicked act done by the Caesar is actually the necessary act that God is using for the great blessing of the people. <laughs> that is the way the scriptures describe most events. The event that remind, reminded people of God's absence was the same event that God planned for their deliverance. And it's often in these darkest moments where God is most at work. Now, you and I don't think he's most at work. You and I think that he's most absent in those moments. But it's usually in the darkest moments where we think he's not there, where God is quietly working in the most profound ways. And that's the way the scriptures uh, describe some of the worst things that have ever happened. So uh, you ask me, what's the worst crime ever committed? I would say it's the killing of God. I, I would say that the cross was the worst crime ever committed because Jesus was the greatest person who ever lived and they murdered him. But when, when the disciples describe the event of the cross, here's what they say. And Peter describes this in Acts 2, verse 22. He's preaching to a bunch of Jewish people. And he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man, this Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So the reason he ended up in your hands was because God had determined that he would. And you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You killed God. Wicked, evil act. And yet that very wicked and evil act is the very act that God was using and was necessary for the saving of the world. Remarkable how God's providence works that way. 
You ever have you ever uh, you know maybe been to a surprise party? I've heard stories from people who keep uh, the the um, honored person, the, the, you know, the person whose birthday it is or whatever, or whose anniversary it is, they have to keep them away from the party while the party gathers and everybody drives, just parks down the street and then they bring them a little bit later. The person whose job it is to keep the, the, the birthday boy away, that's an interesting job because what you're doing the entire time is you're taking a person and wasting, just wasting time. <clears throat> Um, you can imagine that that person who's out, uh, you know, shopping with them or taking them somewhere or driving the wrong way, that the, that the birthday boy at some point is like, why are you driving the wrong way? Why Just go back to our house. Why are we at the, in the mall? Why do we still have to be here? What are you doing? This is ridiculous. The frustration that comes and the anger probably that comes when, when you're the surprise party, you, you don't know the surprise party and the anger comes towards the person who's wasting your time. You get angry at them, frustrated. And then of course, finally, they take you back to your house and you walk in exhausted, kind of frustrated with the friend or family member who's just taking you around and you walk in, surprise, they all say, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, the very thing that I was complaining about a few minutes ago the wasting of time and my friend taking the wrong way, the, the very thing was the necessary thing for the surprise party. And in the end, when you see, when you're you know, mingling and you have your cup of juice or whatever and you're drink, eating your cake, your, your friend comes up to you and says, see, I told you, or I was trying to keep you apart from it and you were all getting all mad at me the whole time and yet I had a purpose and all of it. Right, that's what God is doing. You and I think it's a waste of time. We think that we're being you know, driven around in circles and how irritated we get with it, but God, is, God has got purpose in it. The very things that we count as evil and wicked and difficult, and they are evil, wicked, and difficult. They are, but they're the very things that God is using for our deliverance and our good. There's a... I tell people every year or so about this guy named John Patton. He was a missionary in a place called uh, Vanuatu in the South Pacific. Uh, he went there in the first four years that he was there. He was on an island called Tana, and it ended very badly. Nobody came to faith in Christ in those four years, and they wanted to kill him at the end, and they were chasing him around the island. Finally, he got away. And he came back years later, not to Tana, but to another island in that little group, an island called Aniwa. And when he went to Aniwa, like the whole island came to faith in Christ. And he wrote his, his autobiography about it. And in it, he, he's, he reflects upon the failure of the first four years and the difficulty of being chased around and <laughs> nearly killed and what that led to later with all these people coming to faith in Christ on this other island. And here's what he said. He said, oftentimes while passing through the perils and defeats of my first four years on the mission field of Tana, I wondered why God permitted such things. But on looking back now, I already clearly perceive that the Lord was thereby preparing me for doing and providing me materials wherewith to accomplish the best work of my life, namely the kindling of the heart of Australian Presbyterianism with a living affection for the islanders of their own southern seas. Basically, his book had become so popular that people were reading about it and gained a heart for these islands and started to pray about it. And in being the instrument under God 
of sending out missionary after missionary to the New Hebrides to claim another island and still another island for Jesus. That work and all that may spring from it in time and in eternity, all these people who come to faith in Christ and all these other islands in what was called the New Hebrides, the Vanuatu, all of it never could have happened or never could have been accomplished by me but for the first sufferings and then the story of my Tana Enterprise. So even in these four years of devastating loss and difficulty, God was actually setting the stage for the future glory that would happen with all these people coming to faith in Christ. And John Patton didn't know it at the time. What is God doing? But he has a plan. There's an old poem. William Cooper, God works in mysterious ways. He was a depressive guy, Cooper, and so he was looking for hope in the midst of his depression. He wrote, a, he wrote this poem, and there's a line in it that has always stuck out to me and has been rolling through my mind in the last little while as we go through some difficult days. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Like you and I have a feeble sense. We don't have a full understanding of who He is and what He's doing. So don't judge him based upon your perspective on things in the midst of the difficulty. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Instead, trust him for his grace. Recognize that God has intent here and that his intent is gracious toward us. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, behind the difficult things around you that make you think that God's mad at you and not helping you, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The very circumstances that make God seem distant are circumstances in which God is working most. He's more sovereign. He's more in control than we even think. Here's the final one, uh, final reflection on this passage. God's kingdom prizes humility. And so here you go in the last two verses of it, verse 6 and 7. So while they were there, while they, they arrive in, <clears throat> in Bethlehem, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for him. So there's a few things here that we need to note. First of all, that this, the word guest room actually refers to a guest room. It's, it's, I know that we like to paint different pictures of it, um, that, he, that, it, that they couldn't get into an inn. There is some, some evidence that maybe this is an inn, but pro it's probably not. It's probably a guest room in a family house. Joseph has family there. And so it's a guest room in the house, and maybe they were late, or maybe there were just too many people because of the census, and they get there, and the family doesn't have enough room in their house to fill the guest room, or to have, an extra, to have these people in their guest room. So, so they have to end up uh, staying downstairs, likely, in the stable part of the guest room. So here's a, here's a picture of a, of a house during those particular days a cross-section of it. And this is a pretty good. It's, it's two stories, and the roof is used also for extra space, so you can go up there and sit in the sun or eat, eat food or whatever it is. You have the upstairs, which is the upstairs living place, and then downstairs there's a storage. They have the kitchen there, and then they have a stall. In those days, it was very common for people to have stalls for, with some of their animals inside their house on the first floor. In the same way, it's very common for you to have a garage for your car. And so when it's described that they had to stay and put their child in a manger, it's likely in this little 
section of the house that they're, that they're in. They're safe there. There's some family around to some degree to help them. They're in the garage, basically, of the house. And so that's, that's what's going on. That's the guest room that isn't available for them. So they're staying probably downstairs. And when the baby's born, uh, they, they wrap him in swaddling cloths. These are strips that were tied tightly around the child. And the belief in those days was that if you didn't tie your strips around the baby, uh, the, their limbs would get all, uh, all wonky, all bent up. You need to straighten their limbs out. My son, Ethan, when he was born, he had these little frog legs that would go straight up like this. And so you had to like wrap them down so that they would go down. I had a great time with that. I used to put them down and then go boing, down boing. And so I'd wrap them up real tight. That's, that's what happened. They wrapped them up in swaddling cloths and then, they, and then they laid them down in a stone feed trough, basically, in a manger. That's all you have described in this passage. That's it. Have you ever seen Christmas plays during Christmas time? What? There's always an innkeeper and he's always a jerk. There's a donkey. There's like 15 sheep. There are all sorts of things that we, we, we want to put in with this. Like we have a story about how, how they go through every part of the town looking for a place to stay and they can't find it. And finally, they just happen upon a, a, a stable or a, a cave or whatever it is. And they go in there and it's very uncommon, we think, for them to sleep with animals or have animals around. Well, that's not the way it is. But we love to fill in the blanks because it's so stark. The description is so stark. In fact, if you look at this, here's a picture of, of Jesus' birthplace now. This is the Church of the Nativity. The Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem today. This is where most people think Jesus was born. If you notice, there are these um, silver and gold pots full of incense that are hanging there. You have stained glass and marble everywhere and a, and a gold... Um, like star where Jesus' manger actually was. Look at, I mean, look at how much money and um, design and flourish is in this picture. We feel like this is what it should have looked like, right? He's the birth of the king of kings. It should look like this. N not, not just a, a stone feed trough. That's, that's ridiculous. We're uncomfortable, in other words, with the simplicity of the whole scene. And the report Luke gives is totally unadorned. Why? He could have written it different. God, by the way, could have orchestrated it so that he, Jesus was born. Uh, the prophecy was that he would be born to the greatest king in the land and the greatest king in the land. He would grow up in the palace and la, la, la. But that's not what happened. Why is it so simple? Why is it so unadorned? And I think the answer is that the method is the message. The method is the message. The plainness of the description conveys something about what God values. Weakness over power. Humility over pride. Substance over style. And when you think about the the Christian church, I don't know if we have the same value that God does when it comes to this. We actually think we can gain power. Well, that's what we need. We need power so we can ex execute our power on everybody else around us. We need more style so everybody will come in, be excited about it all. I was uh, reading this last week uh, an article in the New York Times 
There is a pastor in a church in New York City who uh, has unfortunately um, had a moral failure, and he also was well known for his relationships with lots of different uh, celebrities. They even had a VIP section in the church that he was a pastor of. And so if you're a really important person, if you're really you know, a celebrity and you came in, they would put you in the front of the church, and they had three rows marked off for you. Um, this church was really known for how cool it was. It was really known for how designy it was. It was really known for how great the music was. It was really known for all the lights that it did. And this particular pastor was known for his fashion. In fact, he had websites that, that tracked what he wore every week and how much money it cost to wear it. He was really cool. He was thought of as like the cool, hip pastor, one of the most cool and hip in the world. New York Times uh, talked about this moral failure, and they talked about the church itself. And here's, here's what they wrote. He says, at, at the church, living well and looking good are sometimes framed as forms of evangelism. Janice Legata, who was an early attendee of the New York branch of the church, recalled leaders referring to a well-known verse from 1 Samuel that reads in part, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The verse is traditionally interpreted as an exhortation to look past appearances. But at this church, the verse was twisted, Miss Legata said. God's presence is not in doubt, they said, but to attract superficial man, it was important to present the best outward appearance possible. So the way that you get people is that you look cool. The way that you, the way that you attract the people to the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you, you do it in style. There's nothing wrong with lights and Having doing things well, but it does seem really interesting that God did not agree with this approach if we use the birth of Jesus as an example. God believes in simplicity, in humility, not in the show. Man, he could put on the show, but God values Faithfulness, quiet, honor. There's a, compare that, the story of that pastor to a, a story about another pastor who was asked this week, he writes a lot of books, and he was asked this last week, uh, what do you do with all the proceeds from your books? And his answer was, well, I don't, I actually, we, we give it all away. I formed a foundation, and in that foundation, we get together every year, and all the money, which is pr like a lot of money from the sale of books, he's got like, you know, 50 books, and all the money from the sale of the books goes into this foundation, and every year we get together, sometime in January or something, we give all the money away. He says, it's like the coolest day ever. We just get together, and all this money, we give to missions, we give it to all sorts of things. We just give it all away. Well, why do you do that? He was asked. He said, I don't, listen, I don't... The Bible warns us about money. The Bible warns us about greed. The Bible warns us about being too addicted to style and stuff. God does not need me to be all with it. God, God needs me to be faithful. There are more important things happening in the world. There's more substancy things that are happening in the world than adorning myself with all these kinds of style. What a difference, eh? 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but 
God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You can say a lot of things about the Christmas story, but one of the first and most important that you have to say is that Jesus was born in humble circumstances and it's called humble people to humility. Weakness over power. Humility over pride. Substance over style. Are those the things that mark us? Are those the things that we're pursuing, even in our own lives? An authenticity, a substance? Or are we just addicted to what it looks like? Merry Christmas. King is born. Let all the world rejoice.